series on Genesis in the beginning. If you're visiting, g'day, my name's Kieran, I'm the pastor here at St. Phillips and we're delighted to have you here with us for this new series. Genesis is a book of new beginnings. Uh, It's the beginning of the universe, it's the beginning of the human race, the beginning of sin, of redemption, of culture, of language. It has the first song, Uh, it's got the first flood, Uh, it even has the first drunk. Uh, It has the first marriage, it has the first murder, the first person to die, and the first person to never die. Uh, Genesis is a book of beginnings. Now, the custom in ancient times um, for books was to uh, name the book by the first word in the book. Uh, Genesis was written in Hebrew, and the first word of uh, Genesis was Bereshith in Hebrew. And Bereshith means in the beginning. But uh, in around 250 BC, uh, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek uh, for the Greco-Roman Jewish believers. Uh, And so the word Bereshith was translated into Genesis. And so that became uh, the name of this book. And so it is till today. Genesis, it means uh, in the beginning. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. Now, It's hard to talk about the topic of creation without mentioning the topic of evolution. What does Genesis have to say about evolution? Was it a literal seven days? Were Adam and Eve literal historical figures? Well, uh, I sent through a fascinating discussion in What's New, our our weekly email newsletter, um, uh, a discussion with these um, highly um, established scholars and academics. So one of them, um, Professor Lennox, he's the Emeritus Professor at Oxford University, and he has uh, not one doctorate, not two doctorates, but three uh, doctorates. He's one of three scientists who are uh, talking about um, the origin of species, Darwin, and the theory of evolution. Uh, And if you haven't uh, looked at it, if if you have any interest in this whole area and debate, I just really highly recommend uh, you have a look at it. It's an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. And there's no end to the literature and the writing about this whole debate. I commend it especially to uh, teenagers, if you have a scientific bent, to uh, look it up and and have a look at these three um, academics talking about uh, the origin of species and the theory of evolution. Uh, Any scholar, however, studying an ancient text, whether it's biblical or whether it's a secular one, um, knows that you have to read the text on its own terms. In other words, you have to ask, what was the original author trying to say to uh, his, and it usually was his, original audience? And given the fact that Darwin's Origin of Species was written in 1859 and the book of Genesis was written some 3,000 years earlier, it would be fair to say that uh, the author of Genesis, who was Moses, wasn't thinking about something that was written 3,000 years later in Darwin's Origin of Species. And so you have to come to a text on its own terms and find out what it is that the original author was trying to say. And I think this is one of the keys to understanding Genesis 1 properly. It's, it's to understand as well that the Bible was written in lots of different styles and genres. Lots of different styles and genres. So there's narrative, there's poetry, there's law, there's wisdom literature, there's um, prophecy, there's the gospels, there's epistles, which were letters that were written to churches, and there's apocalyptic and so on and so forth. 
So, for example, um, Revelation, the, the, the first book and the last book seem to be the source of, of, of the most controversy, even to today. But in Revelation uh, chapter 12, the writer who is uh, John, he, he writes about the birth of Christ, but using apocalyptic uh, language. So we know that the birth of Christ was, was a historical fact, and we can read about it um, historically in, in the Gospels, in that type of narrative. But the writer of Revelation in chapter 12 says of the birth of Christ, that a great wonder and sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Now he's talking about Mary. And, and it goes on. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then, get the apocalyptic language, then an enormous red dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Now, what on earth is this talking about? Well, it's talking about the fact that King Herod, if you know the story, wanted to destroy Jesus. He saw Jesus as a, as a threat to his kingdom. And so he ordered that all of the baby boys would be destroyed. But um, John is using this apocalyptic language to talk about how the power behind Herod was the power of Satan, the red dragon. And he wanted to destroy who would ultimately crush him, the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so uh, there's a difference. The point is that there's a difference between reading the Bible literally and reading the Bible literalistically. Have you got it? Stay with me. The Bible is literal. In other words, it's a piece of literature. The Bible is always telling the truth. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and useful for um, encouragement and correction and rebuking and training in righteousness. All scripture. Now the New Testament hadn't been written at that stage, so he's speaking specifically about the Old Testament, and this book is God-breathed. It always tells the truth, but it's literal in the sense that it's literature. It tells the truth in different styles and genres. Uh, to read the Bible literally is to make sure you understand what style and what genre you're reading. And so if you read Revelation and don't realize it's apocalyptic, you'll be like, well, what a red dragon? What, what, what on earth is he uh, talking about? But So to read the Bible literalistically as opposed to literally is to ignore what the author is trying to communicate and it's to ignore how the author is trying to communicate. So to take Genesis 1 and to treat it like a science textbook is a huge mistake. You've got to read it on its own terms and the style is more like historical prose and narrative. So you've got to be able to figure out how the author is trying to communicate when you're getting at the truth of what's being said. So with that in mind as an introduction to try and kind of get the, to whet the kind of evolution appetite, and, and if you want to keep exploring, please go check out that interview. So can I get a show of hands if anyone uh, was able to see that uh, interview? Yeah, there's a handful. I, I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating discussion, particularly if you have a scientific bent. But with that out of the way, let's, uh, let's get into... Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Have a look at it with me. It says, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. 
The, the first thing I want you to notice in this uh, story is the centrality of God. Look at how it starts. In the beginning, God. Before there was anything, there was God. He's eternal and everlasting. So central is he to the first chapter of the Bible that he's mentioned 35 times. He's the main character of this story. Uh, just to take one verses 1 to 5, for example, he's doing all the acting. God said, God swept, God said, God saw, God separated, God called. And that's only verses 1 to 5. He's the main character of history, which makes sense because it's history, his story. The main character of this story is God. And you've got to remember that for 400 years, the Israelites had been immersed in these pagan stories and mythologies when they were slaves in Egypt. And these stories usually saw uh, the physical world as a product of this violent war between uh, the gods. So, uh, you know, you end up with the god of the sea and the god of the land. Uh, You've got the god of the stars. You've got the sun god. You've got the moon god. And they're always in conflict. And that's what they've been immersed in for 400 years. But then Moses through God, says to the the redeemed people of Israel, in the beginning, God. Just one God. He didn't have to fight anyone to get things done. He didn't have to fight anything in order to get things done. In fact, did you notice, it doesn't say, and God said, let there be light, and then he went and made light. No, it just says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The power of his word. God is the sovereign Lord of everyone and everything. He has no rivals. Do you know what this means? It means that it's not about me. It means that it's not about you. Do you know how countercultural this is in the age of the selfie and in the age of the iPhone? It's not about me. It's not about you. Uh, there's this motivational speaker who's quite popular. His name's Simon Sinek, or Sinek, and he says the problem with the selfie culture is that it makes us feel like we're the most important person in the world, but we're not. In the beginning, God. Thirty-five times the author leaves us in no doubt that the main character and the centre of it all is not you. It's not me. It's God. And that is good news. Uh, Tim Keller says, At the heart of the universe is this love and joy, an exploding love and joy. Uh, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as they each defer to and glorify and rejoice in and adore the others. Each one is doing that to the others. And that's what we're designed for. Every human is built and designed to stand in the presence of God and not to center on yourself, but to center on the glory of God. That's what we were built for. That's the love that you're looking for in every set of arms. That's the beauty that you're looking for in every face. That's the gold that you're seeking in every competition. 
That's the rest that you're really looking for in all your homes, in all your houses, and in all your holidays. We were built, not for ourselves, but for the glory and the wonder of God. Nothing else is going to satisfy the deep places in your soul because you've been built for nothing less than the glory of God. So let me ask you this morning, who's the main character in your story? What is it that you're living for? Is it the glorious God of the universe? Or is it just you? I pray that God, by his spirit, right now will set you free from the dark dungeon of the self to go into the wide spaces of living for the glory of God. Because you know what? A life wrapped up in itself makes for a very small package. You are built for so much more than yourself. Our culture and our world is desperate for meaning, is desperate for purpose. And so it's no secret, it's no wonder that it's the age of the selfie. It's far too small a package to carry what we were built for. The center of the story is God and his glory. Like it says in the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. First thing I want you to see is the centrality of God, but I want you to see also the beauty of creation. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was formless and void. Other translations say um, formless and empty. And so I've put up this table to summarize the, the six days because there's this incredible order that God brings out of the chaos. And you can see that the verse 2 sets up the, the, the kind of program, if you like, for the next six days. He says, uh, the earth was formless and empty. And what we see God doing in the first three days is giving form to the, um, to the chaos. Uh, light and darkness, so there's a separation um, Sky above and waters below, another separation, and then the land and the plants. Uh, And so God in the first three days is bringing this form out of what is formless, and then he says it was empty, and so on the next three days, four to six, he's filling in the emptiness. And so what you see here is that um, he fills the light with the sun, and he put in the darkness, he fills up with the moon and the stars, and then... Um, with the sky, he fills it with birds, and the waters below, he fills with fish, and then the land and the plants, he populates with um, animals and people and food. So there's this amazing form and structure uh, to what God is doing, bringing order out of chaos. And after the end of every single day, without fail, God says, and, oh, sorry, not God, the author says, and it was good. Verse 4, and it was good. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25. And then after he's made humans, and only then does he say, what does he say? It was very good after he makes humans. Uh, The Old Testament scholar Walter Bruegemann has pointed out how intellectually revolutionary it's been for the book of Genesis to say that the material world is good. The Greeks and the Romans certainly didn't say so. 
Uh, Eastern religions certainly don't say so. They, they say that the, world, the physical world is more like a, a shadow or an illusion. Uh, even Islam says that the ultimate paradise is not physical, it's, it's spiritual. No, this is an intellectual revolution for God to make the world and to say again and again and again, it was good. Melvin Tinker says that the word uh, good can mean beautiful, valuable, and fit for purpose. Like when a designer comes into the workshop floor to look at the new engine he's just designed and he says to the workman, that is good. You see, God presents himself as the ultimate craftsman, the consummate artist. That is good news. Particularly if you struggle with the body God's given you. Psalm 139, I praise you God for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I can remember melting into tears when my mentor said, Kieran, you need to meditate on Psalm 139 that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is good news. I just want to take a brief look at some of the beautiful things that God has made as we just dip into some of these days. So on day three in verse three, where, verse 11, sorry, we're told, then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with seed in it. Get this. It's estimated that there are between 390,000 and 450,000 different species of plants that we know of today. By the way, I had a lot of fun researching this. I just want to give you some of the highlights. Uh, There are an estimated 10 to 12,000 different types of grass. Don't you think just like one would have been enough? There are 60 to 80,000 different types of trees. And this is one of my favourites. Guess how many flowers there are, known flowers, species of flowers there are in the world? Not quite. You've overshot there, millions. 369,000 different types of flowers. Daisies and sunflowers, there are 25,000 types of daisies and sunflowers alone. Guess how many types of roses? 4,000. Types of lilies? 4,000. And, and God made the colours too, right? Uh, do you know how many, uh, what percentage of colours the human eye is able to detect on the electromagnetic spectrum? How many, how many colours we're able to perceive? It's 0.0035% of all the colours on the electromagnetic spectrum. That's less than 1%. The human ear that God made... Uh, Guess how many sounds that it can detect on all of the possible sounds in the sound waves? It's 0.1% of sounds. No wonder God says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. He's not even talking about the physical creation. He's talking about the new creation. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. I think there's something going on with there. It's related to how when Paul saw the resurrected Jesus in front of him in Acts 9, he went blind for three days. Too much light, too much color. We're going to need new eyes. And we are going to get new eyes. 
Let's keep going. In verse 16, it says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So, so let's just start with the closest star to the earth, the sun. Did you know that the sun is so big that the planet earth could fit into it 1.3 million times? Wait for it, though. There's another star called Antares that could fit the sun, which fits our earth 1.3 million times. Antares can fit the sun into it 64 million times. There's another star, though, called Hercules that could fit Antares 100 million times. I mean, my mind was blown back in the earth fitting in the sun 1.3 million times. I don't, our minds cannot conceive. There's another star apparently called UI Scooty um, that fits Hercules 31 times. I mean, it's just vast, this world that God has made. Now, remember, the sun is just one star out of 100 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. And guess how many known galaxies there are? Anyone? A hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion stars. And here's what Psalm 147 verse 7 says. God determined the number of the stars and calls them each by name. And I love that all this mind-blowing majesty that the human mind cannot even comprehend is just given three words in Genesis 1, verse 16. Did you see at the end of the verse, it just says, oh, and the stars. Almost like it was an afterthought. Just this tiny little throwaway line. And part of what's going on here in Genesis is that, that they had been slaves in Egypt. And guess how the Egyptians thought about the stars? They worshipped the stars. So majestic were they. There was the, they were the gods. And, and here's Moses saying, these majestic beings that you worship, that you think of as ultimate, are just a tiny little speck in the landscape of the creator God, the living God. He just made the stars. So at this point, you've got to ask, why? Why so many stars? Why so many galaxies? Why so many flowers? Why so many plants? Remember that the Bible is a story first and foremost about God. And so what is this telling us about God? Surely it's telling us not only is he powerful and able to do these things, but that he's generous and abundant and joyful and that he delights to make these things, that God's beauty and color and playfulness and majesty and joyfulness abound in his creation. Doesn't this tell us how joyful and generous our God is? I mean, you know, why create three types of flowers when you can create 369,000? And why create, you know, 10 stars when you can create 100 billion times 100 billion? Our God is majestic. He's playful. He's delightful. Melvin Tinker writes, God is the supreme artist who creates on a vast canvas with huge brushstrokes. The diversity and magnificence of the universe, shimmering with color, exploding with activity. He's extravagant in his creativity and he loves doing it. Do you know what Jesus' first miracle is in the Gospel of John? I, I love this. He's at a party and, 
and it's about to flop and fall over just as things were getting started because they've run out of wine and that was like the kind of basis on which you had a party. So what does Jesus do? He turns water into wine. You know, people have this picture of God as the ultimate party pooper, but that's because they don't know the God of the Bible revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the ultimate party pooper. He's the ultimate party starter. Just look at Genesis 1. Just look at Jesus. Our God is a beautiful God, the source of all beauty. And so the beauty of creation leads us finally to the blessing of creation. Have you noticed, if you've read the Bible, how the Bible talks about um, the creation singing and dancing and clapping its hands? Have you noticed that in the Bible? Uh, In our reading last week, in Isaiah chapter 55 that Natasha spoke from, in verse 12, it says, The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and In Job 38, God rebukes Job, saying, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Where were you? So why all this singing and shouting and dancing and clapping? I want to show you why. Because it's there in verse 22, and it's there again in verse 28. Why all the singing and shouting and clapping and dancing? It's because God blessed them. God delights in them. God delights in what he's made. He loves what he's... He's speaking over them of what he's made, and he's saying, it's good, it's good, you're good, you are beautiful. And so, of course, the trees are singing. Of course, the birds are singing. Of course, the stars are singing. They have the maker of the universe over them, delighting over them and rejoicing over them and singing over them. And so they dance as if they're saying, my God loves me, my God blesses me, my God delights in me, my God rejoices over me. And so no wonder they're singing and dancing. And do you know what? Deep down in our heart of hearts, this is what every human heart is craving and built for. And in the absence of this kind of blessing from the glorious God, we're just driven by this anxious and insecure striving and we'll do whatever it takes in this world to receive the praise of the ultimately praiseworthy. So whether it's a romantic partner, whether it's your amazing career, whether it's your good grades or your good manners or your good looks, At some level, we're all trying to get other people and other things to say, wow, Kieran, you are amazing. It is good. I delight in you. You know, one of these mentors of mine that I I just think of so highly, he just said to me the other day, Kieran, you know what? I so respect you. You know what that did to me, to hear those words? Yes, I sit a little bit tall. Sorry, uh, what was that again? <laughs> this is what we crave the blessing 
for people to say, wow, you're so good, you're so beautiful, you're, that was awesome. This is what we were built for. Uh, Simone Weil was a French philosopher who lived in the 20th century. Uh, she was Jewish, but uh, she later came to Christ. Here's what she says. She says, the love we feel for the splendor of the heavens, the plains, the sea and the mountains, for the breath of the winds and the warmth of the sun, the love of which every human being has at least an inkling is an incomplete, painful love because it's felt for things incapable of responding. People want to turn this same love toward a being who is like themselves and capable of answering to their love, of saying yes. This longing to love the beauty of the world in a human being is essentially the longing for the incarnation. So what do we do with this longing? Well, I want to tell you not what we do, but what God has done because we fast forward to John chapter 1, verse 1. And do you know what the writer says? The writer says, in the beginning was the word. This is the word that God spoke when he said, let there be light, the source of all beauty and glory and wonder that we've been touching on. He says, in the beginning was the word. And then in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son well, this, this word, this Jesus, he, he grew up and when he was 30 years old, he was baptized by John and the heavens opened and do you know what God spoke over him? He said, this is my son whom I love in him. I am well pleased. This is the ultimate benediction. This is the ultimate blessing that God spoke over his son. And you know what? It was the first time since the Garden of Eden that anyone had heard those words because he was the first one who ever earned it. Jesus is the only one who loved God with all of his heart and with all of his mind and with all of his soul and with all of his strength. He didn't worship the creation. He worshipped his God and Father. And so God says to him through a life that was truly worthy, you are good. You are my son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. You're blessed. And yet at the end of his life, as Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sky in the middle of the day turned black. And all that he heard was silence. Tim Keller says, have you ever thought about the irony of the word of God getting the silent treatment? Have you ever thought about the irony of the light of the world being completely shrouded in darkness? What's going on here? What's happening on the cross? This is not a benediction. This is not a blessing. This is a malediction. This is a curse. This is not the word of commendation that Jesus deserved. This is the word of condemnation that we deserve. He was getting our word of condemnation. 
saying, Depart from me, you evildoer, and be thrown into eternal darkness for worshipping my creation instead of worshipping the Creator and for receiving all my gifts but rejecting me. Depart from me and be cursed. He was getting the word of condemnation that we deserve, but you know what it was for? It was so that we could get the word of commendation that he deserves. Isn't this amazing? Do you know what it means? It means that if you believe and receive this life-giving word of the gospel, then you know deep down in your heart of hearts that the malediction and the curse that you deserve was placed on him on the cross. And the benediction of all of his delight and glory has been given to you by grace through faith. Isn't that amazing? That's so that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. And then do you know what he says after that? He says, For we are God's masterpiece. His masterpiece that he delights in, a new creation in Christ. He looks at us and he says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And so in the same way that God brings order out of chaos through his life-giving word, our response needs to be to bring the chaos in our lives, the chaos in our hearts under this life-giving word of the gospel, the God of grace, and to hear his blessing spoken over us through his word and his gospel again and again to bring healing and to bring beauty out of brokenness and to bring triumph over tragedy. And then as he does that work in our lives, then he Send us out into the world with that life-giving gospel to do the same, to bring beauty out of brokenness, to bring healing where there's hurt and to bring triumph where there's tragedy. There's a commission. He says we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared for us in advance to do. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we praise you that you are the glorious blazing center of the universe. And it's not about us. It's all about you. There is meaning. There is purpose. There is glory everlasting in you. And we praise you for your life-giving word that brings blessing and brings order out of chaos and brings beauty into the world. And, And Lord, we pray that we would hear that word of benediction and blessing in our hearts today, bringing our chaos into order, bringing beauty out of our brokenness. Jesus, I thank you for myself, how you have healed me and you have brought deliverance and you are slowly but surely bringing order out of the chaos of my own heart and giving me a bigger purpose to live for. And I pray that for all of us, Lord, that through the gospel, we would hear you rejoicing over us with singing. And then, Lord, may your light shine through us the rest of the world. May your song sing out through our lives to others, bringing healing and hope and renewal for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Let's sing.